Grace, mercy, and peace to you, church. If you would turn with me in your Bibles to Jude. We're still in the little book of Jude, end of the New Testament. Revelation, and turn left. Well, in our last message, Jude gave us a picture of the secret enemies of the church. They were described, as we saw in Jude 4, certain men who had crept into the church. And among the things that were described concerning their identity, we saw really a startling fact about these men. They were predestined for a particular condemnation. A truth we, I think, can easily understand in the mind, but it finds a lot of challenge in our hearts. These things we discovered up to this point gave us kind of the theme of the letter, the first four verses, to defend the faith against those who have crept into the church. Now, having closed this introductory section up to verse 4, we come now to a really lengthy section in Jude's letter where he brings out ancient texts to give us a picture of the condemnation of these false teachers. This section extends from verse 5 all the way to verse 19. And each section of text that we'll handle over the next several messages, Jude speaks about that text and follows up with a commentary. And he proves the relevancy of these ancient prototypes to the current situation in the church. And so the purposes this morning are, our purposes this morning are verses 5 through 7, and the title of the message is Predictions About Apostates, and everyone's got a sermon outline, correct? Or at least most of us do. If not, raise your hand. I'd like to hand those out. Okay, Miss Ginger doesn't have one. That's okay, Miss Ginger, follow along with a neighbor. <laughs> So this will be the first of a multi-part series that we handle these predictions about apostates. In verses 5 through 7, we're going to see three notorious examples from the Old Testament that remind us of these things. And it kind of sets the larger framework, which is really the lion's share of the letter of Jude. We see the judgment of the Israelites of the Exodus generation in verse 5. We see the angels, the judgment of the angels who did not keep their proper dominion, verse 6. And we see the judgment of the inhabitants of Sodom and Gomorrah going after strange flesh in verse 7. Now in each of these, there is a prefiguring of the judgment of apostates. In each of these, we see that no matter what privileges or mercies these people enjoyed whether it was Israel, whether it was an angel in heaven, or even Sodom and Gomorrah in all its glory, each were judged by God for their sins. The severity of the judgments we'll discover highlights the gravity of their transgression. One theologian puts it this way, by identifying the false teachers with these examples, Jude moves us to reject apostate infiltrators and regard them with horror. He gives us both the intellectual information and what our hearts should feel toward those men. So we're going to handle our text in four points. First, we'll see Jude's call to remember. That's verse 5. Second, we're we're going to see uh, Jude calling us to remember Israel. Third, we're called to remember angels. And fourth, we are called to remember Sodom and Gomorrah. So let us read verses 5 through 7, and we'll begin our exposition. Now, I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, 
serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. So Jude begins by saying, now I want, you to, I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it. Now that's the ESV. Now this is a prominent theme in the Bible. Reminders, remembrance. God calls his people over and over to remember. It's a prominent theme because of what? God's people are a very forgetful people. Forgetfulness of the works of God is a grievous sin, beloved. Sadly, and it leads to more grievous sin when we forget. It's not like when you forget where your keys are. It's something more profound than that. It's forgetting God and his works. Think about this. Deuteronomy 9, it's a pivotal moment in the redemptive history of Israel, exhorts the Israelites to remember the salvation of the Lord. They had been led out of Egypt. They had gone through all these things, and God looks back and says, remember and do not forget not only what I've done, but who you were. The Psalms are full of reminders. Psalm 106, for instance, calls the people to remember their wanderings and God's faithful deliverance. It's a, a historical rehearsal to avoid repeating it. Psalm 38, Psalm 70, as the superscription of their title of those psalms, it says it's a psalm of David for the memorial offering. The Israelites offered a a sacrifice of memory to God. And Paul tells Timothy in 2 Timothy 2.8 to remember Jesus Christ, that he might fight and endure in the Christian warfare as a gospel minister. So over and over again, we're told by the scripture to remember. Now, putting each other in remembrance is a godly thing to do. And so Jude, as a faithful minister of the gospel, as one who loves the church, puts us in remembrance of some very plain and familiar things. And Jude assumes that Christians have some knowledge of the scripture. Now, the ESV says, although you once fully knew it. I'm going to put you in reminder of these things, although you once fully knew it. Jude's not saying that the church had somehow forgotten, although we just mentioned those things. He is stating that what they know about these instances that we're going to cover has been been delivered once and for all to us. These are examples that don't need to be modified in any way. They've been once delivered for all time to us. I think the the NAS, a New American Standard, translates it better when it says, though you know all things once for all. I want to put you in reminder of these things, though you've known them once for all. They've been delivered, handed down to you. So Jude's ultimate concern in this letter is not a a full-blown expose of false teachers. His ultimate concern is to arm you, to arm the church against apostates. We've been called to contend in verse 3. We've been called to keep ourselves in the love of God in verse 21. And at the end of the letter, we're we're called to engage in a very sobering, risky, um, but necessary rescue mission. There are people who are abused by apostate teachers. They are being seduced by them. And we're called to engage in this sobering task. So here, Jude calls the church to remember as an, as an essential ingredient for fighting the good fight. If we forget the past, we are doomed to repeat it. That's the history of Israel throughout the Old Testament, right? They forgot and they repeated it. They forgot and they repeated it. Well, this brings me to some really simple and straightforward observations really quickly. Number one, we have to know the Scripture. Know the scripture, beloved. Knowing scripture is essential for the Christian contender. Jesus is unmistakable here. Matthew twenty two twenty nine. You are led astray, he says, because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. When we don't know the scriptures, there's one thing that happens. We are led astray. 
Your word, Psalm 119, 105, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Who can keep from stumbling who has no light? If you walk in the darkness, how do you keep from stumbling? You must have the light of God's word. Know the scripture. Second observation, rest on the scripture. Resting on scripture fully and finally is a healthy sign of a sober-minded, spiritually mature Christian. There's an entire camp of people in evangelicalism that would disagree with that. The height of spiritual maturity is, a, is an experience outside of Scripture, driven by emotion and experience. The totality, the sufficiency, and finality of Scripture alone must grip our hearts. Paul warns, for the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. This is the church appointing teachers, kicking out good men, bringing in men that, want, that tell them what they want to hear because they've wandered off already into myths. As we'll see later, this rejection of Scripture as total and sufficient and final is one of the chief faults of an apostate, an imposter. Look at verse 8 in Jude. Jude, verse 8. In like manner, these people also, what? Relying on their dreams. These people were driven not by a conviction of what the Word of God says, but they were dreaming these things up in their heads. It's been wisely stated that the book will keep you from sin, and sin will keep you from the book. But there's something more ultimate in an apostate in his mind than God's holy word. We have to, as good contenders of the faith, rest on Scripture alone. Third observation Remind each other of Scripture. Remind one another of Scripture. Reminding one another of Scripture is a large part of loving your neighbor as yourself. If we frequently preach the gospel to ourselves, we do well. But that's not the complete picture. We have to remind one another of these things as well. Peter says it this way. 2 Peter 1.12 Therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. You've, you've met certain Christians like that, right? That's old truth. I know that. Let's move on to something bigger and better. Come on, don't tell me about the gospel again. That's old stuff. Let's get it down to the, the nitty-gritty, the new stuff. But Peter says, you know these truths, but I've said it as my intention as your brother in Christ, as your preacher to remind you of the same thing over and over again. I think it right, he says, as long as I am in this body to stir you up by way of reminder. As long as we are here together, beloved, as a church, in this flesh, we ought to stir each other up by way of reminder. Even the most spiritually mature among us, those who, Peter says, are established in the truth, need reminders of the plain things. I pray the Lord grant us a, that spirit, spiritual mindedness that when we're having conversation, for instance, in just a moment, those things just bubble up out of us. We're constantly reminding one another of the gospel, of the good things of God. So remind each other of the scriptures. And so we see here Jude's call to remember. Now I want, you, now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it. We must put one another in remembrance of these things. Well, now we come to our second point and our first reminder. Remember Israel. Remember Israel. 
In each of these examples, Jude shows us an ancient prototype of a present danger. Here, we are to guard against apostates and their secret infiltration. But how do we do that? Jude says the first thing we ought to do is remember Israel. Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. Now, the account Jude recalls here is from the Exodus uh, out of Egypt, which is more specifically detailed in Numbers chapter 14 and Exodus 32. In this verse, in Jude 5, we meet really with a, a checkered history of the identification of who exactly accomplished the deliverance and judgment. Now, most of you, a lot of you have an NAS here. Some of you are reading a legacy standard Bible, probably. Uh, Some of you have an ESV. The NAS says it was the Lord who delivered a people out 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 of Egypt. The ESV says it was Jesus who delivered a people out of Egypt. I think the best reading of this text, just for our purposes here, we can't get too deep into this, but the the best reading of this text is the word Jesus. Consider these things. The reading in our history, in our manuscript tradition, the reading that Jesus saved and destroyed is attested earlier in our manuscripts and the church fathers and found to be more geographically widespread. So as you look at the map of where all the New Testament manuscripts went in the early days, it's more geographically widespread, and it's earlier in church history. It's both earlier and more widespread. The reading, I think, affords us a very powerful argument against the apostates who, just look at the previous verse, had perverted the grace of God into sensuality, and denied our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Jude is making a very powerful argument here that it is Jesus Christ who the apostates are dealing with. Okay? But think about this also. The New Testament understands this kind of theological position, that it was a pre-incarnate Christ with whom the Israelites dealt. Think about this. 1 Corinthians 10.4. All drank from the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, Paul says, with most of them God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. In this verse, you have Jesus identified as God, Jesus delivering the people, Jesus judging the people. Just a few verses later in that same chapter... Paul says, we must not put Christ to the test, as some of them did, referring to the Exodus generation, and were destroyed by serpents. Who destroyed them? Who destroyed the Israelites in the desert? Jesus. Jesus did. Jesus affirms that it was him, the pre-incarnate Christ, whom Abraham saw. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad, John 8, 56. This was not just seeing the promise from afar with the eyes of faith, but God appeared to him in human form, Genesis 18, 2 and 17. It was a pre-incarnate Christ that Isaiah saw, high lifted up the train of his robe, filling the temple with glory. John 12, 41 records, Isaiah saw these things, or said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Who did Isaiah see in the temple? High, lifted up, the train of his robe, filling the temple with glory? Jesus Christ. John records that it was Jesus Christ sitting there. It's recorded in Hebrews 11 that Moses considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt. Moses, his dealings 
We're with the pre-incarnate Christ. So Jude, his reference to Jesus saving and destroying a people fits naturally with many other expressions in Scripture. Who saved a people out of Egypt? Well, let's just put the two together. Let's make the NAS and ESV talk together. The Lord Jesus Christ. Who saved the people out of Egypt? The Lord Jesus Christ. Who are apostates dealing with? The Lord Jesus Christ. It was Christ that apostates were dealing with then. It will be Christ that apostates deal with in subsequent judgment. The text says that Jesus saved the people, yet afterward destroyed those who did not believe. Jude's point is to make the connection that current apostates, those who are currently threatening the church, are full of the same unbelief as their ancient prototypes. The sins of those in the wilderness were many. It would take us all day to go through them. But all of those sins are encompassed by Jude in this word, unbelief. They were unbelievers. They did not believe. Now, as we think about this, it's an incredible fact to think about concerning the the people of Israel and their deliverance. Think about this. A true prophet was given among them to speak the word of the Lord. Ten plagues were invoked upon the heads of their enemies. They lived in consecrated homes, guarded by the blood of a lamb. Death passed over them. They participated in Passover, consecrated their firstborn, held a memorial feast of deliverance. They had a pillar of cloud by day so the sun would not scorch them. They had a pillar of uh, fire by night so they wouldn't walk in darkness. With their enemies behind them and the Red Sea before them, there was no hope, it seemed. The sea was split in half so that they might walk on dry land in the midst of it. Their enemies drowned. They were fed manna from heaven. They drank water from a rock. Bitter water was made sweet. They experienced the thunderings of God's might on Sinai. They received his law. They were given a tabernacle and a priest and an offering. But what is recorded of their response? Numbers 11.1. And the people complained in the hearing of the Lord about their misfortunes. It's recorded in Psalm 106 of the Red Sea event. They rebelled by the sea, and the writer of the psalm says, even the Red Sea. The psalmist writes in a way that he's astonished looking back on the event. Here are the people hemmed in behind and before, miraculously delivered by God, and the psalmist writes, they rebelled by the sea, even the Red Sea. This is unbelief, beloved. It is a heinous sin. There is nothing like it. Think of this. God's character and God's word stand together. They stand together. Psalm 138, verse 2. For you have exalted above all things your name and your word. God is exalted above all things, above all the glory of his creation, two things, his name and his word. Tribute to God's revelation, what he says is a tribute to his character. What does unbelief do? It makes God a liar. 1 John 5.10, whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed the testimony that God has borne concerning his son. Unbelief makes God a liar. Unbelief is the mother of all of our sins. The the most ancient sin recorded, Genesis 3, takes us to the heart of every sin. Did God really say? And we know the rest is history. Unbelief is the birthplace in your life of every deprivation you have. Every deprivation. 
God's working in our life is opposed by unbelief. You can see that in John eleven forty. The word does not benefit us when it's mixed with unbelief. Hebrews 4, 2. Our prayers are hindered because of unbelief. James 1, 7, 1, chapter 1, 7 through 9. And it bars every soul from heaven because unbelief rejects God. John 10, 26. What is God's response? How long, he says in Numbers 14, how long will this people despise me? How long will they not believe in me in spite of all the signs that I've done among them? And then he looks at them and says, Your dead bodies shall fall in the wilderness forty years and shall suffer. You shall suffer for your faithlessness until the last of your dead bodies lies in the wilderness. Surely this I will do to all this wicked congregation who are gathered together against me. In this wilderness they shall come to a full end and there they shall die. Final unbelief in this case is an undisputed sign of reprobation. Jesus' words are very plain. You do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. What's Jude's point? Why this picture of Israel? Why this stark, very heart-gripping picture of Israel? Apostates, supposed Christians who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away, Jude says they will share in the same judgment as the unbelieving Israelites. The points of comparison here are too strong to deny. The fate of apostates is as sure as their primitive prototype. Remember Israel, beloved. This brings us to an observation. Many people have an unbelieving heart when they least realize it. Many people have an unbelieving heart when they least realize it. Hebrews 3.12. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. Unbelief is easy to point out in others, right? But it's hard to convince it in ourselves. It's hard to convince of it in ourselves. This is the spirit of, of God. His work alone does that in our hearts. Maybe you say something like this. It's only those really bad guys that are unbelievers, you know, the biker gangs, the heathens, the Muslims, Democrats, Those guys are unbelievers, not me. How could I be an unbeliever? Do you excuse yourself? The Israelites were God's God's people, and they were destroyed because of unbelief. Maybe you say something like this, I have the knowledge of God. The devil has that too. Acts 19, 15. You believe God is one. The devil does too. James 2.19, this is not a bare belief on his part, but one that moved him to tremble. Maybe you believe and you're right, that you are right with God. You have a, a profession, you have knowledge, you have an assent to the truth, yet you live in unrepentant sin. Receive these words of the Lord with meekness, brothers. Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality will inherit the kingdom of God. I have to ask you, whose word will stand on the judgment day? If we profess to be of him and yet we're living in unrepentant sin... We cannot try to convince ourselves that we are true believers. Whose word will stand on that day? Spurgeon says this, Beware then of having a form of faith that does not purify your lives, a profession of belief in Christ that even allows you to live in sin with license. 
Wasn't this the sin of the apostates? They turned away from the law of God. They perverted the grace of God into sensuality. They denied our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. They were antinomians. For if you have this, Spurgeon says, however near you may seem to be to the people of God, even if you are counted in with them, yet God will not reckon you as his. For he is the same Lord who destroyed those who did not believe. Many people have an unbelieving heart when they least realize it. Second observation. Sin against more excellent light will incur a weightier judgment. These are hard things. We're doing some heart work here. Hang with me. What Israel had in the wilderness was a great manifestation of God's power. It was light. But that light only gave them a shadow of the things to come. The rejection of this light incurred God's judgment. And it was a weighty judgment. We read of that in Genesis of Sodom. The true light, which casts no shadow, has come. Christ. What of the judgment of men who have seen that light and yet shut their eyes? It will be a weightier judgment indeed. Listen to Jesus' words in Matthew 10. Truly I say to you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town that has rejected the gospel. Those who have never heard of Christ will receive the judgment according to the light of nature. Sodom and Gomorrah saw shadows, and they have their judgment in proportion to that light. We see the shadowless substance of Jesus Christ. He's in full bloom, blazing glory for us in the New Testament. What will it be for those who have rejected that light? Sins against a more excellent light will incur a weightier judgment. This also reminds us that we have to be careful with the mercies that we receive from God. We have to be careful. Jesus, when he healed a man after being a cripple for 38 years, said this, John 5, 14, Go and sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. If we will not listen after mercy, we may be treated with greater severity by the Lord. God admonishes us, be not like a horse or a mule without understanding which must be curbed with bit and bridle or it will not stay near you. God shouldn't have to break your neck to get your attention. His mercies ought to grip you. Mercy is meant to make us teachable and cautious. One theologian has stated it this way, none usually have greater judgments than those who have had the sweet experiences of mercy. Why, he asks. There is no hatred so great, he says, as that which arises out of the corruption of love. It's a strange thing in our hearts, beloved. Think about this. Those who constantly abuse the known mercy of God end up being those who hate God the most. Some of the most atheistic people I know, some of the hardest hearts that I know that I've run into over the last 20 years in Christ are Jews. They've had the known mercies of God, and I can say that they are the hardest atheists sometimes. Those who constantly abuse mercy end up being those who hate God the most. It's the corruption of love. That's the heart of an apostate. So just as Jesus admonished us, remember Lot's wife, here we are soberly reminded, remember Israel. Remember Israel. This gives us a picture of what apostasy looks like. A third point, remember the angels, verse 6. And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling. He has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Now, I know these things are hard to hear, and maybe your heart's challenged, 
But don't lose the picture of what Jude is doing. He's giving us a picture of, an, of a prototype that we will see playing out in people's lives today. Apostates, false teachers, wicked men, heretics teaching false doctrine. Jude says, remember the angels. Now think about the nature and dwelling place of angels. These were apostate angels that Jude is referring to. They shared a common dwelling place with elect angels. The Lord created them good originally. Every angelic being was pronounced to be a good creation, Colossians 1.16. Their nature, the angelic nature, is better than ours, more excellent than ours. What is man, the psalmist says in Psalm 8, that you are mindful of him, for you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings. They could, as creatures made rational and moral and immortal, contemplate God, worship and serve God, and delight in him. Their knowledge, while it's not omniscient, is uh, greater than ours. Their power, while not um, omnipotent, is greater than ours. They're not subject to death. Angels don't die. That's a mystery in the Old Testament, isn't it? Why angels fight but can't die? Maybe I'm the only one that's ever thought about that. Jesus says, for they cannot die anymore. Speaking of our our nature, um, believers at the resurrection, for they cannot die anymore because they are equal to angels and are sons of God being sons of the resurrection. Angels don't die. They were given an exalted name, the sons of God, Job 38, 7. They were given to rule in heaven. They have thrones, dominions, rulers, authorities, and their dwelling place was heaven. Heaven was a place of holiness and happiness for them. They basked in the supernatural light of God. Think about their dwelling, but think about also their sin. Jude says they did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling. They fell very soon after their creation. Paul says it was the serpent that deceived Eve in 2 Corinthians 11.3. When was man created? Day six. The angels fell soon after their creation. Jesus calls Satan a murderer from the beginning. And the apostle John says that Satan has been sinning from the beginning. Being created and constrained by time apostate angels left their proper dwelling soon after creation. But their sin is not so easily determined. I think we can generally say it was to exalt themselves against God and to seek supreme authority. And their fall was all together and all at once. The apostate angels fell and Satan included led them astray. Being in heaven, they had nothing to allure them. There was no tempter before them. The tempter came from them and drew them away. They had all the spiritual privileges and innocence of heaven, and they forfeited it all. They forfeited it all. What does God say about their punishment? He has kept them in eternal chains under gloomy darkness. The scripture says that they are kept in chains. One theologian asks, how can a spiritual being be bound with chains? Well, I think Jude is speaking figuratively here. This this punishment is the punishment of God's providence over their lives. Their strength is restrained. They're prevented from doing their own evil will. The guilt of their conscience has bound them and shuts them up in a prison. Think about this. Nothing drives a wicked person more insane than being prevented from doing by God what they want to do. If you remember as an unbeliever, if God in his providence restrained your sin, it drove you mad. Now we thank God for his restraining hand. But nothing drives a wicked man more insane than being prevented by God from doing what he wants. Theirs are spiritual chains. 
Proverbs 5.22 says this very plainly. The iniquities of the wicked ensnare him, and he is held fast in the cords of his sin. Guilt is often described as chains and a prison. And here the apostate angels are not free from the chains of guilt. The scripture says these are not only chains, but they are eternal chains without the hope of redemption. God's decree is fixed on them. There is no changing it. And it says they are kept under gloomy darkness. The word darkness refers to the imprisonment of the underworld. The imprisonment of the underworld. It signifies some very startling things about this place. Darkness is the darkness of ignorance. Spiritual knowledge in us, beloved, in Scripture is compared to light. And it's said to comfort us. It's by this light we see God and we find comfort in the knowledge of him. But the scripture says gloomy darkness is devoid of the light of God's countenance. These angelic hosts who once lived in the light of the glory of God have now been shut up under the darkness of ignorance. And it's the darkness of misery. This is an eternal misery. Their conscience continually filled with guilt. It's a place of ever-increasing torment because of an ever-increasing apprehension of their guilt. The more they come to understand what they've done, the guiltier they feel, and there is no escape. They have no comfortable thoughts of God. All of their future thoughts are robbed of hope. And every thought only tends toward this one thing, final judgment. Final judgment. And that's what the text says. They are kept under gloomy darkness until the judgment of that great day. Gloomy darkness is not the worst result of their apostasy. It is not the final mark upon the angelic host's life. They are being held until the judgment of that great day. The punishment of apostate angels will be greater on that day than it is right now. Whatever's being done to them now is only a prelude to a greater fate. Greater things will be done on that great day which we cannot fathom, beloved. It will be truly a great day, awesome and terrible before the Lord. I think Jude's argument is simple. It's a weighty argument. I can see it on your faces. It's a, it's a tough text. It's weighty. But I think his argument for us is simple. It's unavoidable. If God did not spare such glorious creatures who are far superior to us in might and power and excellence, who enjoy the heights of heaven and the presence of God, Will he spare any man, no matter what gospel privileges they say they've had, if they continue to walk in unbelief? That's a mouthful. It's an argument from the greater to the lesser. If God would punish the angelic hosts who are more excellent than us in many ways, will he spare any man who has gospel privileges here if they walk in unbelief? Apostates, be warned. T.D. Jakes, be warned. Andy Stanley, be warned. I don't say those things for views. It's true. Superior ministers than you have been judged by God in this way. How will you escape the same? We must see apostates for who they are. And lastly, remember Sodom and Gomorrah. Remember Israel, beloved. Remember the angelic host. Remember Sodom and Gomorrah. Jude's final example is more general here, and it's probably the most familiar to us, so I'll be the most brief. He says in verse 7, Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, 
serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. It's an example mentioned, as I could count it, some 17 times from Genesis to Revelation. Being so frequent will only be brief. Jude uses the word likewise, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality. He makes a meaningful connection here between this city and the apostates during his time. Their ancient prototype is just like them. Just as current apostates pervert the grace of God into sensuality, we saw that in verse 4, they do so just like the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. Their sins were not only fornication, but also a violation of the natural order of things. Something Paul says, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. Apostasy, this is the interesting connection. Apostasy and sexual sin have a very dark and twisted and close connection. Apostasy from the gospel, walking out from under Christ and all that you've ever known, and sexual sin have a dark and twisted and very close connection. The apostasy we see happening today in the church strongly connects to the perverted nature of these sins. It's no wonder that people are walking away in the masses because sexual sin is being entertained the way that it is. What's the aim of Jude's remembrance? They serve, he says, as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. What was Sodom and Gomorrah? What was that city? Well, I think we could say this. It was the world's great example. It was a place of beauty, once comparable to the garden of the Lord. This is what drew Lot to the place. As he looked over the Jordan Valley, he saw Sodom and Gomorrah and its beauty. And the text records that it was the, almost like the beauty of the Garden of Eden, Genesis 13.10. It was a place that was ordered by government, Genesis 14.2. It was many times delivered from wars, Genesis 14.15. It was a place that received great patience from God. Abraham interceded for them over and over and over again. Will you sweep away the righteous with the wicked? He asks the Lord in Genesis 18. And God says, if there were ten righteous persons in those five cities, he would spare them. Ten righteous people in five cities? It's an astonishing fact. And it was a place that heard the frequent preaching of righteous lot. We read that in Genesis 19. Has this man who's a sojourner among us now become our judge? Who are you to walk up in this place and tell us what's right and wrong? They received the mercy of God in the preaching of the gospel. And its final state, beloved, was ash and misery. Suddenly burned with fire and brimstone, showing us the power and severity of God. Well, we've seen three very stark Old Testament reminders, things that have kind of put a, I don't know, a certain mood over us, it seems. Remember Israel, remember the angels, and remember Sodom and Gomorrah. In each of these, as we close here, in each of these, we have seen that no matter what privileges or mercies each of these examples enjoyed, whether it be Israel and its church mercies, angelic beings in their heavenly mercies, Sodom and Gomorrah and all their earthly mercies, all were judged by God for their sins. The severity of the judgment highlights the gravity of the transgression. And to quote again, Douglas Moo here, by identifying the false teachers with these examples, here's the point of, the, of what I'm trying to say here, and Moo gets it right. 
by identifying the false teachers with these examples, Jude's intent is to move us, to move your heart into a place where you don't, you don't play niceties with seducers anymore. These are not just Christians who are misinformed and a little misdirected. These are people who are leading people to hell forever with their doctrine. Moving us to reject apostate infiltrators and to regard them with horror. Where is your heart with these things? How do you feel about these men who do these sorts of things? Now, if you've been wavering, maybe this is a challenge to your heart. Maybe this is Jude's challenge to consider these things rightly. If you found your heart pricked and the thought of your abuse of the mercy of God is before you, then the scripture says repent. Repent. Turn back to the Lord. He is merciful. The Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. Amen? Let us pray. Lord, this is a hard text. It's straightforward, it's clear, and it challenges us to think rightly about not only the remnants of unbelief we have, even in a believing heart, but Lord, also those who are in our midst, in our culture, who are leading people astray, who are speaking false things, who are men condemned and trying to bring others down with them, men who are not sincere about the truth, but who are liars and who take advantage of the sheep of God. Would you please help us to remember these examples that we may be good contenders of the faith. In Christ's name I ask, amen.